Summer's an awesome time. Uh, I always feel like there's this sensation of picking up speed while slowing down at the same time. I don't know if that relates to any of you, but that's how I feel. Um, but right now we're going through a sermon series in Colossians, if you're unaware. Uh, we've been going through this book of Colossians the past few months, and we're, uh, we'll be wrapping up soon. Uh, today we're going to touch, just barely touch on the last chapter uh, so we're gonna, so Colossians is four chapters. We're gonna touch on the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four. Um, and so, and then right after we finish, then Pastor Dan is back. So we're gonna hold down the fort till he gets back. And, and I don't know if you're aware, one of the reasons why, uh, I believe we like to go through books of the Bible is because, um, we want for God to determine the agenda of the sermons. We want for God to determine the agenda of the sermons because if we didn't go through a book, and it's okay every now and then to not go through a book, but if we didn't go through a book series, uh, what happens is the preacher, whoever's preaching, has full control over what is being preached on. He gets to decide the topic. And so the topic of the sermons would just be, you know, whatever the preacher was thinking about that week or whatever the preacher read in the Bible that week. And sometimes that's awesome. Um, but the thing is sometimes preachers have certain tendencies and they have certain emphases. And, and so going through a book of the Bible, uh, it helps us, you know, be in check, uh, because then the Bible determines the topic. And, and I share that because today we're going through a passage that if I had the choice, I probably would not choose. Okay. I'm just going to be honest, straight up. I did not choose this. Okay. I just, I chose a calendar date and, uh, and then I got this passage. So. To be honest, this passage has some things that I personally haven't all figured out. And so this is a little bit of a rough draft, and uh, you just have to chew on it, but that's what you get today. But I'm trusting that God has a plan to speak through me today, and uh, I trust that, uh, you know, I did my homework. I did a lot of homework on this, okay? And if I somehow offend anybody, I just hope that it's the Bible offending and not me offending. I hope it's the Bible offending and not me offending. Okay, so I'm just going to read this passage. This is Colossians 3, 18 uh, to 4, verse 1. And it should be on the screen as well. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, some of you, uh, if you grew up in the church, this might be no big deal to you, but if you did not grow up in the church, and if you grew up in uh, the Western world today, you probably uh, might have some light bulbs, not light bulbs, fire alarms going on in your head, because uh, there might be some hot button issues that you might detect in this passage, okay? and if you don't see anything, that's, that's totally fine, but some of you might see some things. You might be thinking, whoa, this is in the Bible? This sounds a little bit backwards. So let's, I'm gonna paint a little bit of a context of Colossians, okay? Just to, uh, get everybody on the same page. So 2,000 years ago, when Paul was writing this, most people adhered to ancient Greek philosophy, okay? And the Greek philosophers, they believed all sorts of things, but one of the things they believed was that the universe was orderly and structured in that it was stable because of hierarchy, 
Okay, they believe that hierarchy, social hierarchy, domestic hierarchy, all sorts of hierarchies were necessary in order to ensure this overall universe stability. And because of that, there had to be different social classes, there had to be patriarchy, and so on. Okay, that's what they believed. That's what ancient Greeks believed. They believed in a deliberate imbalance, a deliberate inequality, an imbalance of power. That's what they believed. They believed that that was central to the stability of civilization. For example, the Greeks believe this about gender. In fact, Aristotle, uh, he's a Greek philosopher, he wrote, the male, as in, you know, the, the man, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior. And the one rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. And, and so the Greeks believed that women were by design inferior to men. Okay, so just that's the context that Paul was writing this letter in. Now, some of you might be thinking, and, and, I, and I, I think it's natural to wonder, did Paul also believe that? Okay, did Paul also believe what the culture believed? And I would say, no, I don't think he believed that. And why would I say that? Because Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul believed strongly in the oneness of humanity. He saw Jesus as this great equalizer of society, so that no matter where you're from, no matter what gender you have, whatever ethnicity or whatever, whatever background you have, you are all the same, you are all one, you are all equal before Jesus. Okay, so that's what Paul believes. Okay, so I think sometimes it's important when we read passages to not take things out of the context. You have to understand, we have to read all of what he, someone wrote in order to understand the whole of what he believes. Okay, and I think that context is important before we go into this passage. But given that, what do we make of our passage? This section is what some scholars call the household codes. There are two major household codes in the New Testament. There's one here, there's one in Ephesians. And uh, basically, the, the household codes are addressed to individual groups of people within the household, and they tell them how they are to behave within the civil structure of society. Okay, so that's the household code, code and this is the one in Colossians. And here, Paul addresses six groups. Okay, you might have noticed there's six groups being addressed. Verse 18, wives. Verse 19, husbands. Verse 20, children. Verse 21, fathers. Verse 22, bondservants. And then chapter 4, verse 1, masters. And you might notice these six groups, they have matching relationships, right? There's the wives and husbands. There's the children and fathers. There's the bondservants and the masters. And you might notice that in each of these relationships, it was socially accepted at the time that there were power imbalances. Power imbalances that one party had the power, the other party did not have the power. That's That was what was socially accepted at the time. I'm also noting that the household codes that we see here, they're not unique to the Bible. In fact, many writers, Christians and non-Christians, wrote semi-similar things, okay? They talked about how households should be structured at the time. In fact, Aristotle, uh, I mentioned before, 400 years before Paul lived, he actually wrote there were three parts to the household, he said the three parts of the household, master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. So it seems like these are commonly accepted uh, categories for households at the time. And so Paul was not making up these categories. I think what he was, what he was doing was he was borrowing well-accepted categories that already existed in order to make a point. What was that point? What was he doing with these categories? Okay, let's look at Colossians 3 now, okay? We went through Colossians 3, but I want to highlight just one verse, which is Colossians 3.1. In Colossians 3.1, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, and then I think Colossians 3 is basically this huge chapter 
talking about what it looks like if you have been raised with Christ. Paul is saying in Colossians 3, he's describing what a resurrected person looks like. How a resurrected person behaves. So how does he behave? Throughout the chapter he says, uh, you need to, resurrected people set their minds on Christ. Resurrected people put their old selves to death. Resurrected people put on their new selves. Resurrected people have the peace of Christ ruling in their hearts. Resurrected people, they let the word of Christ dwell in them. And here, I think what Paul is doing, he's describing what resurrected relationships look like. Okay, he's talking about what resurrected relationships look like, and he's saying, living as a Christian, living as a resurrected person, if you've been raised with Christ, that phenomenon, it doesn't just affect your personal self, your personal holiness, doesn't affect your Bible reading. I mean, it does. It doesn't just affect your Bible reading or your heart condition. It also affects your relationships. I think that's what Paul is doing. The way you talk to others, the way you think about others, the way you serve others, uh, the way you lead others, whatever, all of those things should be different because you have been raised with Christ. And, and I remember, um, you know, a few months ago, I bumped into this guy at the Hamden Library, and this guy, he didn't come to church very often, every now and then. But I remember I talked to him for a little bit, and he said, he just kind of out of the blue, he said, hey, I want you to know something. He said, every time I've talked to you, I could recognize that you really cared about me. And in fact, Every time I went into the village, I don't go very often, but every time I've gone to the village, I recognize there was something different there. There was something different there because people are always so nice and caring. And, and I think the question is, why is the village different? And I think the answer is because we are resurrected people. Resurrected people live differently than non-resurrected people. And I think that's just the way things are. And I think this is what Paul is doing. Paul is borrowing these commonly accepted categories from the non-Christian culture, the, in these categories, traditionally, they're used to teach inequality, and he's using these categories to teach what it's like to live in a resurrected state. But the question remains, I think, if Paul believed in human equality, and I think he did, if Paul believed in human equality, why did he give all these different groups of people different roles and different commands? Why didn't he just say, everybody, just be nice, or everybody just love another? Why did he just, why did he distribute them into different groups? Um, and I think it's because Paul saw various groups of people as equal in dignity, but not necessarily equal in function. And I might have dropped the bombshell on you, and if I didn't, that's, okay, don't worry about it. But I believe that Paul sees people as equal in dignity, but not necessarily equal in function. And what does that mean? Uh, when God created human beings, he said in Genesis 1.26, this is the creation of human beings, he said, let us make man in our image, and... And this man can also be translated humanity. So let us create humanity in our image. And it's interesting that God doesn't say, let me make man in my image. He says, let us make man in our image. And I think what God is hinting at is the plurality of the Trinity. And it's interesting because what this means is our design, okay, is based on the Trinity of God. Our design is based on the Trinity of God. God is a trinity, meaning there is one God, okay, and three persons, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the three persons, they're equal in dignity, uh, but they're not equal in role or function. Um, how are they equal in dignity? They're all God. Uh, there's no, you know, person who is inferior to another person. They're all equally God. Uh, they're all sovereign. But they all have different roles and responsibilities. Um, and, and it's not the Father who died on the cross. It's the Son who died on the cross. 
You know, it's not the son, it's not the spirit who sends the father. It's the father who sends the spirit. And so they all have different roles and responsibilities. And so there is this diversity and unity. And I believe that's how humans were designed. So keep that in mind as we dive into this passage. Because now we're going to actually read it. Uh, I'm going to start verse 18. I'm just going to split this up into different groups. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So here's the hard part. What does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? Firstly, I want to address what this does not mean. Because I believe the Christian church has a long history of misunderstanding gender. And I believe that one of the reasons why it's misunderstood gender is because the early Christians inherited their understanding of gender from the ancient Greeks. And that has trickled down to today. So we need to clarify a few things. This does not mean that women in general are to submit to men in general. Okay, this does not mean women in general are to submit to men in general. This is not a cultural patriarchy. And, but unfortunately, many people in the church, out of a genuine attempt to fulfill this, they have promoted a culture of, I would call, over-submissiveness. Okay, over-submissiveness, and that is a culture that does not value the dignity of women. What does it mean when women submit to men in general? What does it look like to have a culture of over-submissiveness? For one, you have a billion-dollar pornography industry which is nothing more than digital prostitution. It is just an industry that reduces women to circus animals to satisfy the sexual desires of men. That's essentially what pornography is. And it's an industry in which women in general submit to sexual desires of men. Okay, But it's more than just the pornography industry. It's everywhere. We see it all the time. The idea that women are nothing more than eye candy for men it permeates all of culture. We see it sometimes when we watch car commercials, right? You're not selling women, you're selling cars. But you have women on the cars, okay? Why is that? Because women are being reduced to eye candy for men. We experience it when we witness catcalling on the street. We experience it when college athletes rape women. And the fathers of these college athletes, they accuse these women of destroying their sons' careers. They make these rapists out to be victims, right? We see it all the time. We experience when men get into relationships with women for sex, and then they leave when the women get pregnant, right? We see it all the time. And so this results from a culture, I would say, of over-submissiveness of women in general submitting to men in general. And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. So that's my little rant. So this verse is not talking about that. So what is it talking about? So let's talk about this word submit. When we think about submission in today's culture, we think of oftentimes inferiority. And the reason is because that's how our culture often operates. When we link submission with inferiority, we exist in a culture that gives power to those who are leaders and takes away power from those who submit to leaders. But that's not the way Christianity works. And that's really important to understand in order to understand this passage. How does Christianity work? Submission is not linked to inferiority, but to empowerment. Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. The greatest among you shall be your servant. That means those who submit, those who serve are the greatest of all. Okay, That throws the whole dynamic, the whole paradigm upside down. And just look at Jesus' life. This paradox is clearly demonstrated in Jesus' life. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, right? He chose to submit to the will of the Father. And in doing so, did Jesus become inferior to the Father? No, he didn't become inferior to the Father. He remained equal to the Father. So how did he submit to the will of the Father? By humbling himself to the point of death. 
And did he stay dead? No, he rose from the dead, and now he is exalted above all things. You see that? He submitted, and through that submission, now he is exalted above all things. Now his submission has resulted in power and glory. So that's the way the Christian dynamic works. It's a little different, right? That's the way the Trinity works. It's a little different. And so you can think about it this way. The ancient Greeks, they promoted a submission of inferiority. And many people today, we think of submission altogether as a bad thing, so we, th- we reject submission altogether. But I don't think we need to sum- reject it altogether because Christianity did something else. It promotes a submission of empowerment. And that's really weird for us to wrap our minds around, uh, but I think that's what it does. It's submission of empowerment. So what does that look like? Okay, what does it mean practically for a wife to submit to her husband? I think it means she is freely, voluntarily, joyfully honoring, affirming, and supporting her husband as the leader of the family. She's freely, voluntarily, joyfully honoring, affirming, and supporting her husband as the leader of the family. It means she entrusts her future in the hands of her husband, giving him permission to take ultimate responsibility for the family. It means she will utilize her unique gifts, which her husband does not have, for the good overall of the family, understanding that her husband uh, is making the final calls. But how is that empowering? So some of you guys might hear that and you go, that doesn't sound empowering at all. That sounds that sounds like slavery to me. And I'll say it's empowering for the same reason that our mutual submission to Christ is empowering. Okay, our mutual submission is to Christ is empowering because submitting to Christ empowers us to refuse to submit to sin. Submitting to Christ empowers us to refuse to submit to sin. And in doing so, we experience joy, we experience life, and we experience victory. And so well, everybody who's a Christian, we, when we submit to Christ, we choose to submit, and we see a tangible example of what it means that submission gives us empowerment. Because we choose to submit to Christ, we choose to reject, to die to ourselves, to reject all these things that we might like in, in other scenarios. But as a result, we get something we never would have imagined, right? We get this joy, this, lo- this level of life that we couldn't have without the submission to Christ. And so, I would, I think, uh, by submitting to a husband, a woman declares that she is refusing to submit to anybody else. And I think especially in this culture in which submission to all men is so rampant, I think by submitting to a husband, a woman is declaring, I am not submitting to men in general. I think that when a woman chooses to, to submit to her husband, she is saying to all other men, I don't need you to delight in me because I have a husband who delights in me. And I don't need you to love me because I'm already secure in this love my, that my husband has for me. And I don't need to meet your expectations for beauty because my husband already finds me beautiful. And I think when you experience that, you reach this level of contentment, this level of satisfaction, this level of just a, a beauty that you can't get otherwise. And I think when you experience that, you no longer have an urge to appear a certain way in front of others. You no longer have an urge to try to attract the attention of others. And that is an empowering place to be. Next, what does it mean for a husband to love his wife? Ephesians 5.25 expounds on this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This love is a taking the bullet sort of love. It is putting the wife's needs and desires above his own even to the point of death. And so sometimes when people look at this passage, they, they think, um, oh, husbands have, have it easy. All they got to do is love. And I would say they think it's easy because they have a malfunctioning definition of love. They don't understand love. Um, I remember one time in fourth grade, okay, it, I, I liked this girl at school, and um, 
it wasn't VK, I didn't know her back then, but I like this girl at school in fourth grade, and, and I remember having this dream where I rescued her from a burning building, okay? That's what I dreamed back then. And I remember I asked my, I talk, asked my mom one day, how do you know if you love somebody? And, and I forget what she said, but I, I remember thinking, I remember saying to her, I think I love this girl at school. And she's like, how do you know? And I'm like, I think I would lay down my life for her. And she's like, I don't think you would. And, <laughs> and looking back, I don't think I would have either. I think what I was attracted to was the idea of rescuing someone from a burning building and the idea of someone falling in love with me because I rescued her from a, from a burning building. And I think that's what I was attracted to. In other words, it wasn't about her. It was about my reputation. It was about my attention. Okay, that's what it was about. So what, is it, what does it mean to lay your life down for someone? What does it mean to love us, Christ, love the church? Well, think about it this way. What did Christ benefit? Uh, what benefit did Christ gain from loving the church? Did loving the church make him a better man? No. Did loving the church satisfy some desire that he needed to fulfill? No. Did loving the church cause him to feel better about himself? No. What did the church do for Jesus? Here's what the church did. The church let him down over and over and over again and constantly asked for his forgiveness and he constantly chose to forgive. That's what the church did. So what does it mean to love your wife like that? It means even if your wife has nothing to give you, nothing to offer, even if she, if she is rude to you, if she's a pain in the neck, even if she slanders you behind the back, even if she hates you, if she steals from you, if she cheats on you, you still love her. You still cherish her. You still lay down your life for her. That's what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And you might say, are you for real? That sounds a little bit too radical. And I would say that's the point because you're a resurrected person. You have to live a radical life. That's what it means to be a resurrected people. These are countercultural ideas because relationships between resurrected people are different from the relationships between non-resurrected people. Moving on. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Um, so firstly, this is talking about children. And uh, I know most of the children are in the basement, and so they have their own class of their own. I don't know what they're talking about. You can teach this to them later. Children need to be obedient. And here's the thing with obedience. Obedience isn't hard when you agree with somebody. O- obedience is not hard when you're agreeing with someone because then you're just doing what you want to do, right? If, if, your par- if a parent says to you, eat your strawberries, and you're thinking, I wish I could have some strawberries, then it's not hard. You just eat the strawberries, and it's fine. Everything works out. Uh, but obedience is really hard when you disagree because it means you are setting aside your own preferences, your own desires, your own way of thinking for your parents' preferences, desires, and way of thinking. It, you're essentially saying, I think this way is best for me, but my mom or my dad, for some reason, they think this way is be- best for me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell myself to shut up. I'm not going to listen to myself, and I'm going to trust this other person. Okay, that's very difficult. Okay, that's very difficult to do. It requires a lot of intentional internal warfare in order for someone to make a decision of not listening to themselves and to choose to listen to someone else, right? It requires the intervention of the Holy Spirit. That's really what it requires. It requires a child to rebel against himself. That's, that's really advanced stuff. Most children, they're not really at a state where they can consciously decide to rebel against themselves. And, and, I, and, and I'm not a parent, but... It seems to me, because this is my, from my own experience, 
most of the time when I'm obeying, it's not really because I'm obeying my parents. It's because it happens that what I like lines up with what they like. Okay, so but this idea of choosing not to listen to yourself and to listen to your parents, that's radical things. And and, and so that's radical things. Okay, secondly, fathers should not provoke their children. What does that mean for a father not to provoke their children? Well, Ephesians 6.4 expands a little bit on this. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do not provoke your children to anger. And I think this is what it's saying. There's a way of laying down the law, okay, I think it's necessary to lay down the law. But I think what Paul is saying is there's a way of laying down the law that potentially makes your children angry. And there's another way of laying down the law that doesn't make your children angry. And uh, there's a way of laying down the law that teaches them biblical principles that guides them toward a life-giving trajectory. And how in the world do you do that? I'm not really sure. Uh, you know, you might be thinking, you know, every time I tell my child anything, it seems like they're angry, okay? If I say in a nice way, a mean way, you know, a, a baby voice way or a mean voice way, whatever, they're angry, right? It seems like there's this immediate negative reaction, immediate attitude of, of rebellion. And, and I would ask, sometimes aren't we the same way? Aren't we the same way? You know, we might know there are certain people in our lives who, when they tell us to do things, we immediately have a negative reaction. Okay, it might be their tone, it might be our relation, it might be their position, their authority, or whatever. But some some people in our lives, they say certain things to us, and immediately there's this reaction of annoyance. Or, and on the other hand, there are other people in our lives, they tell us to do something, and immediately we get excited about the idea of doing that thing. Right? We, we get excited about fulfilling that person's request. Uh, there might be people we look up to, uh, people we admire, people we trust. Uh, and so I think the question for parents, um, which I don't have together at all, but um, so I'm just, this is all hypothetical. But I think the question of the parent then becomes, how can I be somebody that my child looks up to? How can I be somebody my child looks up to? Or how can I be somebody my child admires? How can I be somebody my child trusts? So that when I say something, the first reaction isn't no. But the first reaction is, I really want to be like this person. And so I want to do this because I trust this person. How can I live in such a way so that my child thinks, I want to be like my mom, or I want to be like my dad? In the Trinity, we have examples of what it means to be a child and what it means to be a parent. Jesus is a model child. He submitted fully to the Father at the Garden of Gethsemane. He chose not to listen to his own will. He chose to lay aside his own will. For the sake of the Father's will. He demonstrated perfect obedience. And the Father is a model parent. He is unconditionally loving, unconditionally forgiving, unconditionally present. He lovingly disciplines us, directs us, guides us, and models for us. And He is a Father we can look up to and admire and trust. We're going to move on to bond servants and masters. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And here I want to remind you again, Paul is simply borrowing well-accepted categories of his day. Uh, It's worth noting that the ESV here 
uh, if you didn't realize this was talking about slavery, it's because the English Standard Version deceived you because they substituted this word bondservants in, whereas traditionally most translations they use the word slaves. Uh, but I think the reason why they substituted this word in is because slavery back then is very, very different from slavery in American history, okay? And so they just didn't want you to think about uh, this type of slavery in American history. It's very different. It was very sad. It shouldn't have been there, but it was very different. And in fact, most, a lot of the times, people willingly chose to become slaves because it was a form of stable income. But I'm not going to get into all the details. For our context, okay, we're not going to talk about that. For our context, the most similar experience we have to this dynamic, this relationship, is that of an employee, okay? Functionally, when you're working for a company or when you're a student, you know, fulfilling classes to get a grade, you are in a sense a bond servant to that company or that school. Ultimately, uh, Paul is saying, don't work in a certain way so that you would get the attention of others. Ultimately, you don't need for people to like you, to talk to you, to recognize you. Ultimately, you're working for God. And it is God who will reward you. That's what Paul is saying. So don't be a people pleaser, be a God pleaser. Don't go around trying to please people. Spend your time and energy pleasing God. And you might wonder, how can I get promoted if people don't recognize me? And I would say, maybe God's calling isn't for you to get promoted. And that might be revolutionary uh, for you because in a world, this is, this is our world, okay? People's identities are wrapped around their careers. People's identities are wrapped around their careers. And what is it that drives people to do what they do in work? What is it that drives people to do these routine tasks over and over? It's, it's, it's their boss saying, great job. Or it's their coworker saying, man, I wish she gave me that task to do because I hate this task or whatever. And so we feel good about ourselves. Or maybe it's, you know, our hope that one day we'll become employee of the month or our hope that one day we'll get a raise or whatever. And so, or if you're a student, it's the hope that you'll get a good grade or it's your hope that one day you'll get into a good PhD program or a good medical residency or whatever. But those are the things that drive people to do work, right? These desires, these ambitions, uh, these people-pleasing desires, they drive people to do what they do. And, And are those things all bad? No, I don't think so. But I think what Paul is saying, those things shouldn't be your primary forms of motivation. Those shouldn't be your incentives for doing work. He's saying, what should be your incentive for doing work? Realize you're working for God. And realize you are uh, he has given you these gifts and abilities, and, and you're grateful for these gifts and abilities, and you're giving the privilege of harnessing these gifts and abilities for the public good. And through this work that you're doing, you're making the world a better place. You are expanding and extending the kingdom of God in whatever line of work you are in. And in doing so, you are potentially providing financially for your family, so you're supporting your family. And, and so ultimately, whatever lot God gives you in life, regardless of you know how far ahead you get in your career or how much money you make, how much people recognize you, whatever your lot is, just gladly accept that. That's a revolutionary message because it undercuts the primary motivation people have for work. And then on the other hand, bosses or supervisors, uh, what is your primary motivation for treating your employees well? Is it because you want a positive work environment so that your employees don't leave or so that your business can grow or whatever? No. Paul is saying your primary motivation is understanding that God is your master. That God is your master. And that means you are under a spiritual obligation to treat those you supervise well. 
You're under a spiritual obligation to treat those you supervise well. You don't have a right to just do whatever you want with the power you have. You are bounded by this command to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to represent Jesus, to love because God is your master. And it also means you are God's representative because as God is your master, you are this person's master. It means that you want to represent God well to those under you. And because God is a God of justice, of righteousness, of love, and all those things. You had, you need to be a master of justice and righteousness and love. You need to be demonstrating these qualities to your employees or supervisees because the way they experience your authority may correspond to the way they experience God's authority. When you supervise someone, when you demonstrate power over someone, the way they see your authority corresponds to the way they see God's authority. If they see your authority and they cherish it, they like that experience, then they're more open to submitting to God's authority. Just to wrap things up, we are resurrected people, and because we are resurrected people, there's a difference in the way we relate to other people. And and I want to be clear, it's not just these six categories that we talked about. The reality is all of us, regardless of our position uh, in society, regardless of our gender, all of us at times are in positions of power, and at other times in positions of submission. Maybe you're in the church context, maybe you're the leader of a ministry team, or maybe you're not a leader of a ministry team. You're just a member of it. Or maybe you uh, have a lot of uh, social authority, you can think of it that way, meaning you're in your friend groups, and whatever you say, people take you know uh, to heart. Whereas other people, the reality is they might say some things that people don't take it to heart, right? So maybe you have a lot of social authority. Or maybe you have a certain relationship with a friend and, uh, you know, you like to boss them around or whatever. Okay, maybe you have a relationship with someone, you wear the pants in that relationship. So everybody sometimes uh, has authority and other people sometimes they, and, and, and it's those same people I mean, other times they don't have authority. And so I think that regardless of those, regardless of where you're at, the case is you are resurrected and because you're resurrected, those relationships need to be affected by your resurrection. And therefore, in all these relationships, we need to be handling them as resurrected people. When we are in positions of power, we need to exercise self-sacrificial love. We need to be modeling our lives after our Heavenly Father. We need to represent our Master by exercising justice and righteousness. And when we are in positions of weakness, we need to be exercising self-sacrificial humility. We need to be unwavering obedient to God. We need to be working for God, not for people. And, And both of those are huge responsibilities. Uh, because ultimately we're called to reflect the nature of the Trinity to the world. And so we might fail, okay? We fail, and that's okay. We will fail time and time again. There's a Switchfoot song. Switchfoot's a band, if you don't know. There's a Switchfoot song that goes, I'm an already but not yet resurrected fallen man. I'm an already but not yet resurrected fallen man. We're already there, but we're not yet there. We're resurrected, but we're still characterized by this fallenness. We're stuck in this limbo that will only find us resolution in the next life. And so until then, we just keep fighting. And we hold on to this God who has never failed, who will never stop fighting for us.